Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy is driving breathtaking political, economic, and foreign policy reforms. Are there risks inherent in his approach? Next, we'll discuss the recent death of a key extremist leader in the Sahel. Is this a game changer? Plus, we look at the future of peacekeeping in Africa. We talk with Parfait Anyanga Onanga, the head of the UN mission in the Central African Republic. We talk about the challenges of leading a multilateral peacekeeping mission where there's no peace to keep. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In April 2018, Abiy Ahmed became Ethiopia's new prime minister. He immediately enacted a raft of paradigm-changing reforms. Cash shortages and state-sponsored killings. The country was fighting with neighbors. There was a lot of tension between different ethnic groups. Abiy is working on all of that and finding real solutions. He extended an olive branch to Eritrea, which ended a two-decade-long Cold War. He unbanned several dissident groups and invited political leaders back to country. He removed the thuggish president of the Somali region and closed a notorious prison there. He reduced the number of ministries and created an equal amount of women ministers to men ministers in his cabinet. He also named a dissident as the head of the Electoral Commission. And finally, he pledged to privatize the telecommunications sector and other parastatals. But these audacious reforms have been accompanied by ethnic violence, uh, by displacement, by internal political opposition. So joining me today to discuss uh, the current events in Ethiopia is Professor Paul Williams of George Washington University and CSIS Senior Fellow Alice Friend. So, Alice, Paul, I was hoping you could help me think through this. On one hand, we've got these really incredible reforms. Um, on the other hand, Abi has alienated um, the small but previously dominant Tigrayan ethnic group. Um, there was a serious mutiny, and 1.4 million people have been displaced since January in fighting between uh, the Somali and the Oromo regions. So how do we balance these positive developments with this undercurrent of really concerning ethnic and political turmoil? So I think this kind of uh, roiling response was going to be inevitable for anybody who wanted to be a reformer inside Ethiopia. And Abe has moved so quickly along so many different lines of effort. There's not really time or space for everyone to adjust instantaneously. The previously dominant group now feels extremely disempowered, and that's always incredibly destabilizing, period. Um, The history of Ethiopia is also such that groups that feel like they have to seize power are probably going to think that there's only a window that's open for so long, and so they'd better take action. So I think you know, what What matters now is how is he able to run real politics inside the country and offer olive branches to those groups that feel disempowered? Very concerning that there was a mutiny in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. What it tells you about the command and control in the military, the fact that the last time that happened was really at the fall of Haile Selassie's government in 1974. I share your concern about the scale and the pace, and I'm kind of wondering what are the ways that Abi can implement and make these reforms irreversible without creating more violence or threats to his government. Paul, in the abstract, have you thought about these issues? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would broadly agree. I mean, I think there's a number of big issues here. One, as you rightly said, it's what's the T, um, TPLF elites going to do now? The ball's sort of in their court. This is going to touch, secondly, on land reform issues and um, issues about property rights, who gets to own land. That leads to the third bit. It's messing now with jobs and employment prospects for people and a, a population that's growing fast. And so I think all that leads to, I would say, both locally and internationally, huge expectations um, on him that are probably, I think, highly unrealistic. I think that's what I'm looking for next is the economic reforms. And part of that actually is connected to the foreign policy. If indeed some of the ENDF, the Ethiopian military, moves off the border with Eritrea, mm -hmm. that would actually give some budgetary relief to the Ethiopians not being in such a high deployment cycle. Um, but some of the things that Abi has promised are really important. They're things that we have been asking Ethiopia to do for a very long time. One reporter that I follow on Twitter has said he's running out of adjectives to explain what's happening in Ethiopia. <laughs> the dizzying uh, is no longer uh, satisfactory. Uh, I'd like to see a little less of the, the headline grabbing and a little more of this concrete reforms that will uh, placate people who feel like they're on the outs and show Ethiopians that, um, that it's not just the big, the big headlines, but it's actually things that are going to change their livelihood. In late November, both France and Mali confirmed the death of an extremist leader named Amadou Koufa. There's been some debate about the significance of his removal from the battlefield. Amadou Koufa is an ethnic pull uh, and he's the preeminent jihadi leader in central Mali. He led uh, what was called the Messina Battalion, which is part of this Al-Qaeda uh, network in the Sahel known as JNIM. So it's AQIM and a couple of other groups that operate in, in Mali and the Sahel. Amadou Koufa was a charismatic leader. He was instrumental in expanding extremist control from northern Mali into central Mali into Burkina Faso. With his passing, I think there's a big question about whether or not this is uh, a disruption or this will actually degrade JNIM's operations in the Sahel. Uh, and there's a lot of really interesting research on and conversation about uh, the strategic significance of leadership decapitation. Yeah, there's a pretty robust debate in the social science literature about whether or not uh, decapitation of terrorist groups in particular um, has any kind of lasting effect on the resilience of the group. AQIM has, has been around in the communities in northern Mali uh, for decades now. And so the social foundation for the group provides it a stability and a lasting um, integration with the community that removing just one leader doesn't really affect for the long term. Yeah, and Kufa has this reputation of, of being... Um, so adept at finding grievances within the pool community, um, using strategic violence, providing some rule of law, and really embedding themselves in Mali. Just, just an anecdote, I was in Mali uh, a couple weeks ago and talking to various observers. Um, their point was that they don't even know who is for and who is against the government and who is for and who is against JNIM and um, the Messina Battalion. Paul, I know you've looked at this situation in Somalia. What are the insights from, from that part of the world? Yeah, Al-Shabaab is an organization where they've had you know, numerous leaders killed in, in this fashion over the years, but they've kept going. So they're clearly you know, adaptable, resilient. There's been an issue as well in terms of who's been targeted. Um, I would say 
slightly less local ripple effects when you're targeting foreign fighters in the organization and, and more ripple effects that get into clan dynamics and problems when you've targeted um, local leaders. And so when I look at the um, US strikes, although there's been a few strikes by um, uh, Kenyan Air Force and um, Ethiopian uh, helicopters as well, but it's mainly the US that have targeted the leaders. You can see, I think, a number of tactical gains, um, organizational disruption, as as we've heard. But on the flip side, um, these types of strikes, they don't stop the recruitment mechanisms for Al-Shabaab. Uh, they don't stop the way that Al-Shabaab um, gains its finances and um, collects money. Uh, thirdly, of course, they don't, uh, they don't also do anything to improve the government. And fourth, of course, these strikes don't help hold territory in any sense, which is one problem. But to finish on your sort of the last point you mentioned, there's a similar dynamic in Somalia where I think it's not always clear who Al-Shabaab actually is or where this organization starts and stops. Yeah, and I frame this as will it disrupt or degrade, but actually some of the case studies show that the violence gets worse. The ADF leader, Jamal Mkulu, was arrested in Tanzania, then extradited to Uganda. Actually, we saw some of the most violent uh, behavior from ADF in Eastern Congo. Uh, the same case has been made on Twitter when the death of Malam uh, Diko, who is sort of was in charge of the Burkina elements of this group, and since his death and his brothers taking over the group, we've seen an, really a, an expansion of extremist violence in in um, in eastern northeastern Burkina. So um, there may be people who are looking at this and saying um, that this is a mortal wound. Um, the reality is, we could actually see uh, an infl- inflammation of violence in these regions following his his death. If these are genuine movements or organisations, then they're not purely reliant on individuals, of course, even you know important leaders. And secondly, if you're putting most of your certainly diplomatic and military effort into supporting these types of um, strikes, and if that comes at the expense of other more sort of structural and political issues, then I think it is probably a, a waste of resources. And as you say, sometimes can even be counterproductive if you um, if you hit the wrong people. I mean, in Somalia, there's been a lot of um, controversial news generated about the level of civilians killed in, in these strikes. And obviously, it's impossible to verify what what is actually happening on the ground with these things. But it gets mixed up in the sort of vortex of propaganda wars and, and sort of um, strategic communication wars. The role of the government Um, in both places, in Somalia and Mali also, is incredibly complicated in a terrorism context. So, you know, Martha Crenshaw was writing way back in the 80s about part of the point of terrorism is to provoke the government into actions that's going to alienate the population. The population in Mali is already highly alienated from the government. And the really complicated factor here is that it wasn't really the Malian government taking these actions. It was the French. The Malian government's cooperation with the French... Um, On the Somalia side, it's, of course, incredibly complicated because there's an AU mission, so it's multilateral involvement. But for a government that's fighting for legitimacy, fighting to just provide basic services and to improve its relationship with its people, we can debate how hard the Malian government is fighting. Continuing strikes against terrorists with no real substantive improvement in the lives of the people out there and no really qualitative degradation of the groups that are helping to oppose the government 
um, just sort of means it's just cyclical and there's kind of no there there. So, you know, sort of thinking about the deep structure of the politics here and whether or not these individual strikes or removing one actor from the battlefield really affects those politics is the important sort of ball to keep your eye on. Yeah. I mean, if they're not going to address the underlying grievances of communities in central Mali, if they're not actually going to return to central Mali, then there's a question about you know how, how limited the effects of this strike are. And this is probably not the first time that we will talk about this, um, this dynamic as well. Divided and poor, Central African Republic's problems reflect years of conflict and mismanagement. UN troops brought in to keep the peace have lost their lives. We're increasingly asking peacekeepers to carry out a wide variety of missions, war fighting, stabilization, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, atrocity prevention, state building, and regime consolidation. Today, we're honored to have a guest who understands these challenges firsthand. Parfait Onanga Ayanga leads the UN mission to the Central African Republic. He is the special representative of the UN Secretary General. Parfait, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of leading a mission where there is no peace to keep? How do you engage with governments and combatants and communities, uh, some of which have really weak leadership and maybe even an uneven commitment to peace? The hardest part in these situations is first and foremost, day in, day out, uh, facing death, death of innocent people, civilian populations uh, mainly, uh, and also the pain roughly every month to preside over uh, memorial uh, ceremonies for my peacekeepers. Yet, we have no other choice, and I must say that uh, in situations of uh, conflict, uh, like in the Central African Republic, peacekeeping is often uh, the only tool that the international community has in, uh, at hand in, in order to avoid entire you know, nations um, and you know, huge swath of lands to fall into the hands of uh, non-state actors. Having these peacekeepers, you know, in, in places where indeed there is no peacekeep is a, is a daily challenge. Uh, we have to engage communities, you know, in the case of car, conflict dynamics are such that uh, um, there cannot be, uh, you know, one single solution. You quickly realize that your forces are stretched out, that um, uh, projection of force cannot be the only answer. Therefore, you know, um, wherever it is possible, we have to create islands, you know, of uh, relative peace, as we have done so far in, in Bangui, the city capital, where we have uh, a weekly, uh, if not daily, contact with national authorities um, in a process that is extremely demanding because it's really about re-establishing basic state institutions so that the state, besides uh, security, will be capable of providing uh, basic, service, basic services to, to its people. So we are also in contact with the civil society, women organization, amazing women leadership in this country, even though unfortunately they're not given a voice uh, as they, sh they should be a youth. You know, again, they, they, they want to build a different country. So it, it is all of these that give us hope that uh, and because of the investment of the international community um, um, in, the, in, in the form of uh, a peacekeeping mission, there is hope that uh, as painful as it is, there could be 
through continued uh, and, and coordinated, transparent and coherent engagement of all, there could be a way out of this uh, really, really uh, deep crisis. Paul, I know that you've written a, a recent really excellent history of the AU in Somalia called Fighting for Peace in Somalia. Are there uh, any comments that you could add to the SRSG's statement? Yeah, well, I think um, what Parfait said there is actually very applicable in a number of environments, sadly, not just in um, Central African republics. I mean, when peace operations go in without peace to keep, as we've heard, clearly the situation is more dangerous in terms of local lives and and peacekeeper um, safety and security issues. It's difficult ensuring freedom of movement for your peacekeepers and access to the places that you want to go. But I would also add a couple of other things. Um, It's very difficult to be impartial. Uh, If you're engaging in active conflict dynamics, you might be trying your best to follow the rules and be impartial to all the different actors, but they're not going to see it that way. They're going to see you as obstructing their particular war aims and war efforts. So it's it's a political minefield or or tightrope to walk to remain impartial. It's also difficult for your troop contributing countries. This is often not what um, the TCCs have signed up for. You've also got the problem, as we just heard, is how do you link then your peacekeeping activities and your military and police activities to a peace process? Because you don't want to just tread water and be there indefinitely. You want to try and spur a peace process. But as Parfait just mentioned, it's it's not as simple as a singular peace process. What we see in these missions, I would basically conceptualize it as you've got very localized dynamics where you're trying to engage locally around particular towns, villages, even roadblocks, camps, whatever it might be. And you're trying to link those very local peace processes right up to then the big national and regional peace processes. And that's a very difficult job, which peacekeepers can't do. It requires diplomats. Parfait, your comments really resonated with me. I was in Mali in late October, early November. And First of all, it's the the deadliest mission, and they really face this, you know, the tyranny of distance. Mali is, you know, about the size of Afghanistan, and there's less than 20,000 UN peacekeeping troops there. And the in- infrastructure isn't great for infrastructure travel isn't anyway. Great. No, I mean, the UN is the air infrastructure. Mm-hmm. If you need to get from Timbuktu to Bamako, it's a UN plane. Uh, you can make a similar argument about MINUSCO in, in Congo. But in terms of the evolving conflict When the peacekeepers were deployed in Mali, it was all around the Algiers Accord, but those groups had fractured and new groups have shown up on the scene. So they had to actually do another agreement called the Pact for Peace, which not only brought in these new groups, uh, but I think what you're doing, Parfait, which is bring in the civil society more explicitly into the peace process. It's incredibly challenging in these environments because the conflict continues to evolve and has so many local dimensions to it. I think another challenge in peacekeeping in Africa today is that often you have a UN or an AU multilateral mission alongside a, a unilateral mission, whether it's French operations in Mali or Kenyan and Ethiopian unilateral operations or US unilateral operations. Alice, how do we make sense of all of these different missions so that they are actually mutually reinforcing? Just on the military side alone, achieving that coordination is incredibly challenging. Um, And it's even more challenging when your chain of command is um, between multiple different countries. And one chain of command is multilateral on the UN side and one is unilateral. In an ideal sense, what you want to do is coordinate so that you don't duplicate effort, but you also don't counteract each other. 
So you want complementary objectives on the battlefield, and you also want complementary capabilities. So that means equipment, but especially communications, mm -hmm. right? You also want to coordinate missions for force protection reasons. Air operations need to know where the ground forces are so that they don't shoot at friendly right. forces. Um, forces also need to know where the civilians are. All of this relies on a lot of good intelligence and also intelligent sharing between actors. And that, of course, is incredibly fraught because it's very hard uh, to share intel across national forces for reasons of trust, but also sometimes for legal reasons. Uh, this makes joint operations centers and intelligence fusion centers on the ground incredibly important. Those are expensive. Those take a lot of expertise. So all of these things are sort of in an ideal world, we would obtain all of this. And of course, in reality, forces vary dramatically in the equipment they have, in their training, in their sustainment, uh, in their political mandates, in their reporting chains. Uh, and so what happens on the ground is that relationships between individuals become incredibly important. Everything is changing on the ground so much. Everybody has to sort of update constantly what their relationships are. So it's an incredibly complicated undertaking. Paul, have you gleamed any insights from your research on this facet? The big issues, as you've hit on already, are coordination, the legitimacy of these operations, and then the, the sort of practical... Um, you know, tactical effects. But I would add a couple of things. Um, one is that I just generally we should start from the point of view that this is not ideal. This is not what we want to see. We should ideally have a singular international regional engagement. And so we shouldn't have lots of parallel operations. These parallel missions can bring capabilities that the peacekeeping forces don't possess. That's, I would say, the real value added. But there's an awful lot of risks of mistakes and negative issues that can go wrong. You've got to be very careful, I think, about giving very different mandates to different forces under the same mission umbrella. And we know that in both the um, Force Intervention Brigade case in Congo and the Regional Protection Force in UNMIS, these started as regional initiatives by Great Lakes states and, and SADAC states, and they became bundled into UN missions, not for strategic or political reasons, but for financial reasons. Yeah. And that is not a sensible way to run things. Parfait, you recently talked to AFP, and I think you were talking about uh, the challenges of transparency in CAR with Russia and China and the U.S. engaging questions about uh, what kind of arms are being brought into the country and how to verify it. Can you expand a little on, on some of the challenges that you face on the ground navigating these different uh, governments' uh, efforts to bring peace to CAR? essential that member states uh, remain extremely focused and ensure that differences, if any, do not come in the way of that unity of purpose. Uh, because CAR, as you see, is, is a very fragile country and it cannot afford having major powers being in disagreement. I mean, it will just ruin the whole purpose of us being there uh, under a security council mandate. So, I mean, I'm very reassured, as I know, uh, um, consultations are ongoing between uh, key member states within the security council. And it is my hope and the secretary general's, you know, belief that uh, in the end, agreement will be, will be reached, that any technicalities will be addressed in such a way that we remain united in, in, in CARC. The whole issue of force itself, you know, was uh, part of a a major uh, report in peacekeeping, the Cruz report, uh, where it was clearly said that in today's peacekeeping, member states have to realize that, you know, as much as, you know, their sacrifice 
their commitment to peace is appreciated and they're sending their, their people at arm's way. They have to ensure that they really send the base. They have to ensure that they send people uh, who are well-equipped, well-trained. On our part, mindset and posture would be extremely you know, critical in, uh, if we were to, to succeed in, in, in achieving two objectives, one and foremost, protecting civilian populations, and second, protecting ourselves. I fully agree with, uh, with Paul that, uh, you know, peacekeeping should not be seen as a panacea. You know, uh, uh, it's becoming more and more complex, and, and it is indeed important that uh, key member states, those who have the tools and the ability to solve, you know, issues, are also uh, engaged. And last point I want to make here is that, you know, uh, for it to be sustainable, uh, peacekeeping has to be, you know, indeed a tactic and, 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 uh, uh, part of, uh, an, you know, un underpinned by a political process. Because at the end of the day, two things have to happen. There must be a, a, a peace process, regardless of the difficulties to, to achieve one. Uh, and there must be also a, a parallel effort to re-empower the state. Parfait, I think that's a perfect place to end the conversation, that peacekeeping is not a panacea, that it's a tactic that has to be part of a broader strategy. That is certainly what I saw in Mali. MINUSMA is making really important effort, but if it doesn't have a partner in Mali, if it's not part of a broader strategy, then it's really just keeping us in a holding pattern. So I want to thank uh, SRSG uh, Parfait for joining us, and to Alice and to Paul, and uh, we look forward to uh, the next episode of Into Africa. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.